Uh, you did I, just finished working out, but that's not going to stop us from rocking this podcast interview well, with you. Workout, big dog. Oh, dude, I did a. My trainer has uh, been very depressed. He's hit hard times, so I decided to keep paying him, but doing it on my laptop. So we we're just doing kettlebells and rowing and just keeping him act, keeping me active, keeping him active. By the way, I like it. I like it. Yeah, keeping active. Well, we. Uh, so I want you to be. Yeah, we're just gonna record it, and we're only gonna use the audio. Uh, and I'm recording on my end, and we got you through the Zoom, so we're all good. And I'm gonna make a quick intro and give you the premise. Can you hear you me? Sound, out? Yes, sir. You sound wonderful. Great. And so you are going. I, I read all about it, but are you going yep. to? Um, just sorry, just want to know: Are you doing video or not? Nah, it's too. I'm sticking to just audio only. This we have the video just just to have it, but we're not using. Okay, it. Okay, fine. Fine. So you can take your shirt off, do whatever you want. Great, I dressed for you. But I was just on CNBC, actually. It's really- I know, Mazel Tov. I like this. Going from CNBC to the big show right here. Yeah, step up here. So this is a real straightforward podcast. I'm interviewing my most successful and interesting people that I know that have amazing occupations. And Zach is my occupational therapist, and he'll explain to you the premise of the podcast. Then we'll just jump right in. Yeah. See <laughs> you? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm working for Jared as his occupational therapist. Nice to meet you. My name is Zach Selwyn. Um, yeah. Didn't, doesn't ring a bell. That name doesn't ring a bell. It does. <laughs> anyway. I know you. I am more than, uh, more than happy to meet you. You obviously have accomplished great things. And Jared recently had to sell his company, has been put on a two-year non-compete uh, hold for jingles. So he's no longer allowed to do the thing no that more jingles. than anybody else in the world. So we're trying to find him a new job. We've interviewed everybody from restaurateurs to photographers, to musicians, to producers, to actors, you name it. NBA uh, players. NBA players. It's just, we're hitting everybody across the board, trying to see if they can sort of explain what they do, how they got to where they are and see if Jared could possibly step into his second career. You know, maybe like something you do. Yeah. And Ben, Ben has been part of my life for a while. When I first got to Hollywood and I didn't have two, two uh, nickels to rub together, he was very kind to me and said, why don't you make music for my shows? But um, Ben is someone who's always uh, had a curious mind. He really looks to people old and young for inspiration. And I, I want to understand, take us back to when you were a young man starting in this business. How did you even get into entertainment? What was the beginning? Well, my um, dad is an avant-garde chamber music composer and uh, brilliant musician as well, a guitarist. Uh, he was the guitarist for the New York Philharmonic, among other things. And my mom was a theater producer, actually an opera singer turned theater producer, and then went into television because paying for private school in New York City was very difficult on an avant-garde chamber music composing uh, grant-led uh, <laughs> basis. And, and she and he greatly influenced my love of show business. You know, they were in it, albeit a little tangential, but they also loved it, even though they were a little more intellectual and, um, you know, artsy. Uh, they also loved general and popular entertainment. And my stepmom actually is also an extraordinary violinist. So I was surrounded by music and the arts. And from also watching their struggles as artists, I realized I wanted to be in entertainment, but I really wanted to have a little more control 
over my destiny and also growing up in New York City and seeing all the sons and daughters of hedge funders like uh, my friend um, David Friedman, who is now David Benioff, the creator of Game of Thrones, he changed his last name, mm -hmm. um, is, uh, mm -hmm. is, you know, his dad was chairman of Goldman Sachs and all his shirts were perfect and I was, and, you know, monogrammed <laughs> and go to his duplex on, on Beekman Place. And I really wanted to have access to that kind of life, that kind of neatness and order that seemed to come with wealth balanced with um, the artistic energy that my parents really gave me as a, as a huge gift. Well, many of the most successful power players in Hollywood have started in, a, in the mailroom at WME. Did you have, did you start at WME in the entertainment business and where, what's your relationship well, I with that? Actually, I started working um, all through college for Warner Brothers through jobs my mom absolutely helped me get. I literally <laughs> Xeroxed her Rolodex and rolled calls. And then, uh, and then from working in those internships, I got a job right out of college at CBS. And then oh, wow. CBS, I, as an a, a assistant who was kind of um, a pawn between two executives, one named Jonathan Levin and another named Marion Davis. And they both wanted my attention, even though I was really doing the secretarial work. And they started to invite me to join meetings, even though I was only 22 years old. And then from, and then from there, I left to go work for Barbara Corday, one of the creative Tagney and Lacey, an extraordinary woman and, and talented executive. And she really was fond of me. And I remember the first day working for her, she came into the office and said, you know, we should announce that you've been hired. Maybe you are the development assistant. And I said, that is so great. Thank you so much. I mean, I love it. And there was three people in the office, me, her, and another assistant. And I go, I, I love that I'm the development assistant. Then after lunch, she goes, you know what? I was thinking we should call Variety and really you should be the manager of development. And I was like, awesome, thank you. And then by the end of the day, he goes, it's going to be in the trades tomorrow that I've hired you as the director of development. And I'm saying, she went a half years old. I am now the director of development for a real production company, albeit with three people total. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that really kind of accelerated me and then um, she got named the president of a company called New World Entertainment. Yeah. And when she brought me over to New World, she kept me as director of development, even though now I was in a company of 300 people and should have been demoted <laughs> back to assistant. And, and then Brandon Tartikoff came in to um, New World and they acquired Marvel Comics. And it was like this incredibly cool job, but they went to fire Barbara and she said to Brandon, you may be firing me, but no, this kid is a really smart guy and you want to pay attention to him. And so Brandon really took me under his wing and I then learned a ton with Brandon. It was a role model and icon for me as a fan of NBC in the 80s. And subsequently... From there, I freaked out about Los Angeles life and Hollywood. Similar to what's going on now in our COVID-infused times, I was so positive that LA was a metaphor for Sodom and Gomorrah. Like all the yeah. clubs were called the Gate or Babylon or Red. Like everything was hell motif. And I was friends with River Phoenix. And, oh, and he and his family who were hippies literally took on the name Phoenix 
about the rebirth and he was murdered, uh, you know, by drugs outside of the Viper room. And I'm like, literally the Vipers are looking at, uh, at and killing this Phoenix who should never die. And, and somehow every time a bad event happens in LA, it's like 77 and sunny, like the, the yeah. earthquakes, the floods, whatever, the riots, it's always a beautiful day when they happen. And so I was like, wait, there's no greater sign from God. He's tempting us to stay because it's so perfect, but he's warning us in every way he can to leave. So I decided I wanted to go do something else and got hired by William Morris before it had merged with Endeavor to go to London and work in their London office. And by this time, my mom was at the BBC working in co-productions, Mary Silverman, and they recognized that she had probably taught me a lot about the international business. And I had actually gone to a MIP with her as her son, not as a executive and had seen me there. And so I basically was able to be hired into this great role to go to London, where, as I always said, 500 bucks a week and all you can eat. Wow, dude, it's this is crazy because I've known you a long time and don't stop right now. But for anyone who doesn't know, MIP is sort of this like Ben is like the king of MIP now. He goes there. And when I first met him, he rents a boat and he sells and he buys. It, he sells shows internationally and he buys formats to bring back here. But I don't even think that was like I didn't even know that was a thing growing up, that that's something you could do in business. I, I, explain what happens next, because you're in. Well, the, so the, I'm the, I get hired to go. To London for William Morris. I end up getting my jaw broken on the Lower East Side after a late night of uh, rocking and rolling with my pals. And I <laughs> you're very good at that. Jaw wired shut as I'm in the New York William Morris office, getting educated to how William Morris works. So they set me up to succeed by introducing to me to all their executives in America, so that when I went to London, I'd have a, a touch point and relationship already built because I would be dependent on them to help me in, in a 24-hour news cycle. Hold on. Are you okay? Another jaw broken? Yeah, seriously. Another, another child. <laughs> I, you hear, I hear bodies dropping all the time. Yeah, this place. is the real, this is the COVID podcast. We got it. Madeline, <laughs> are you okay? Okay, good. Tell me if you need me. Um, so We're keeping all that. You have to keep all that. This is how the world <laughs> works now. I mean, like yeah. more... More, my kids have come in naked with knives, yeah. like in every video conference. <laughs> so um, we, I went from that education, and then I now have this broken jaw. And I remember going to Nappy, which is the like the big American version of MIP, the the American television basically conference at the time. And I have this broken jaw, and I'm hustling, and I'm working and I'm grinding and I'm talking like this with my jaw or chuck and you're like Kanye. I'm, I'm like literally <laughs> sucking leek soup at, with a straw because it's the only protein I can get in my body. <laughs> and I lost 15 pounds in my already emaciated frame. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know people really respected that. Like you know they they thought that was intense and and showed work ethic. And then I end up going to London where I work in the William Morris London office and quickly discover that they are in an ancient business that none of the Ovitzian yeah. like transformation has taken place at William Morris London. Mm-hmm. They're one of the only shops in town, but they are kind of asleep at the wheel. 
And I went in there and Lou Weiss, who was the chairman of um, William Morris at the time, said, kid, focus on formats. Go find some formats and create success. And so I ended up building all these businesses. I got to the sports business with uh, signed Ian Wright and Lennox Lewis. I um, did all these kind of things, but ended up really making my mark by working the big rights holders of Europe to help take their IP into America. What were the first big ones? The first show I did was, and I was kind of viewed as either the the leprechaun bringing you to the gold at the end of the rainbow or is some evil Hollywood kid not Armani kid. Like, <laughs> I, I was like thrown out of as many offices as I was accepted into. And, uh, and we're never going to take your stupid offer to come to Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. You think we need Hollywood? Fucking <laughs> Gervais will probably do it. Go talk to that bastard. Uh, no, literally, they're like, they're like, oh, you asshole. Why would I ever want to make money? Yeah. Why would yeah. I ever want people to see my content? <laughs> yeah, um, and then I uh, am over there and I get the rights to Cracker. This wonderful woman, Andrea Wanfor, who ran Granada at the time, gave me the opportunity to work with her. And I, I locked in and had a great partners in LA and New York, William Morris, including Greg Lipstone, who now works with me and is a great friend. Yeah, and, he's awesome. And was able to lock uh, the rights to Cracker, which we remade for ABC. And then yeah. I was able to lock the rights in a, in a major way to um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And that really was the game changer. And then built out everything with an accent afterwards. We sold Big Brother. <laughs> I represented the Survivor creators. We sold and put together Queer's Folk. Wow. We, we were making literally, it was, it was like running a boiler room. We were making and pushing so much product. But I watched as shows like Queer's Folk and Cracker not lost their essence, but also their adaptation didn't work. Like the people who I was handing it off to as an agent didn't mm-hmm. have an understanding of the British vernacular and why the things worked there. And then in turn, when they replicated them in America, their takes, which is like the creative spin on something, wasn't right. And so I really wanted the opportunity to carry through my own vision on those adaptations as well as create new content for America and beyond. That's amazing. So how many years did you do that for before you made your way back here? I'm, I'm now... I'm, I'm now moving back to America and I'm age uh, 30. I I'm literally have gone from, uh, you know, a 25-year-old pup at William Morris with a broken jaw to a grizzled vet at 29 yeah. in, uh, in the UK and now moved back to New York as I'm turning 30 in August of 2020. Um, I'm sorry, of 2000, August of 2000. And in that moment in August 2000, I also watched as Who Wants to Be a Millionaire uh, launches, uh, you know, Huge. And, you know, and goes on air. Um, confirm the exact date. Maybe it was 2021. Maybe it was, you know, I forget. It might have been right, like right before. Yeah. 2000. We, should, we can look it up. Um, and Ashley may know. And, uh, and I went... Um, to the Bahamas with my friend Charles Finch and was his guest at uh, another friend's house we had somehow commandeered. And as I'm there, the ratings are coming on and my now partner, Howard Owens, is my assistant at the time, 
And I remember him uh, faxing me, you know, calling me to say the ratings just got faxed in. Um, let me read. And I'm like, read them to me. How's Millionaire doing? And he's like, it's 22.3. And I go, you're a fucking moron. It's, it's 2.3. <laughs> right. It's yeah. not 22. It's 2.2. <laughs> oh, it, it crashed, you know? Yeah. I'm like, read me the share. And he's like, it's a 30. I'm like, what? And then the next day, <laughs> the next day, he goes 22.4, 31. And I'm like, holy fuck, my life just changed. And then my call <laughs> sheet was literally Michael Eisner and, and yeah. every Bob Wright, like every player in America. You're the smartest guy in the room now. <laughs> exactly. And every player in American media is calling me and I'm on the cover of the Sunday New York Times and I'm off like a, a rocket ship into wow. uh, media mavenhood. So how soon after that does NBC come into the picture? Because you were just, before I met you, everyone, you know, in Hollywood comes with a reputation. Everyone's like, they use the word wonderkind or something like that. They're like, you're going to meet Ben. He's going to change your life. And when I met you, you really did change my life. But by that time, you were still young when I first met you, but you had already been president, you know, head of NBC. You had already sold Reveille. Tell, how, did, how did NBC happen? So I, well, I ended up starting Reveille back by yeah. Barry Diller and yeah. uh, NBC Universal. And there, you know, created our take on Ugly Betty and built out that whole show and cast and vision. Um, started to adapt The Office with Ricky... Stephen, Greg Daniels adapting here, found Steve Carell. And then I also uh, created with my uh, partners, The Biggest Loser, which became a massive franchise and um, also created The Tudors and brought in Michael Hurst to write it for us. And so literally transformed the historical drama, um, updated what could be done in reality television with aspiration, not just degradation and reinvented the comedy with the first single camera, no laugh track photo documentary in the history of broadcast, and also brought Latin aspiration to the broadcast yep. where they had been underrepresented. And so from there, I got a phone call to go be the chairman of NBC, which I agreed to do stupidly. And uh, in that <laughs> moment, we had three successive strikes. I'm 36 years old chain smoking weed and uh and also the uh you know single and and mm -hmm. and pretty confident in what was going to happen like i i pushed that creation of hulu and you know insured and supported it i saw where digital delivery was going i orchestrated friday night lights having a windowing strategy to survive i greenlit parks and recreation i greenlit community you know and built out all of those successes and it was obvious to me that broadcast TV had to become uh, a launch pad for successful shows the studio owned. I actually merged the studio and network, you know, before anyone had. And, uh, and additionally created the straight to series model, which no one had done, you know, so all of these elements, but when you are that much of a disruptor in a town that has relied on cozy coddled relationships for so long, you piss people off. And yeah. I pissed everyone off because I was uprooting the system, even though today it is so clear that it had to happen for its survival and it's where it's gone. At that moment, it was uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah, because you're basically upsetting the apple cart. No one likes change. There's a saying, uh, nobody likes to get out of a warm bath. I think it's like some yeah, it's Chinese proverb. But, you, you know, I, that's the thing I've always loved about you. I think the things that 
have scared, you know, and basically shed off an older generation of people who are used to these deals that just, it is the way it is. I think digital scared the hell out of people. And, you know, you seeing Hulu, even Hulu, even that far back and knowing that, you know, things were going to change this dramatically to on demand and people cutting the cord and all that stuff. What, when you were there, did you get met with a lot of resistance to this change regarding digital and cable? Everything and creatively like Dick Ebersol would bitch at me that the office sucked and you know, how dare I, you know, that's not broadcast, you know, cut Mm -hmm. to it being the most valuable asset that company owns, you know, or, or (laughs) parks and recreation, you know, is Amy Poehler pretty enough for broadcast TV? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, like, <laughs> and, and wanting to put on diverse people and being told that's not the NBC brand. I'm like, we're the urban aspirational intellectual network. Like, what do you mean yeah. that's not our brand? We're the home of the Cosby show. What, what are you talking about? You know, and so I was met with resistance everywhere. The people who actually embraced me were the advertisers because they mm-hmm. knew I was going to deliver for them and integrate them and treat them like partners and the talent because I also loved and and focused on them and believed in them. And so those two pillars, I was able to also take with me the rest of my career. Yeah. The thing that sticks out to me that I, I look, I, you know, smart people borrow geniuses steal. I've stolen a lot of great ideas from the people around me at, you know, whether it's music producers or writers and all that stuff, but your way that you've been able to fold brand relationships into what you do. And most people in Hollywood do not have relationships with Omnicom or, uh, you know, WPP. And how, what were some early examples of getting people to pay for content? The first or show Microsoft. I, yes. Well, the first show I did as a, uh, entrepreneur at Reveille was the restaurant, which was fully mm-hmm. funded and underwritten by brands and was basically a docu-soap that no one else would fund Jamie, and was able Jamie to get. Jamie Oliver, right? Was that, was that the show? Yeah. Jamie Oliver, New York? Was that the show? No, no, it was Rocco to Spirit. Oh, Rocco to Spirit, that's right. Okay, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. And um, that memorable. Um, and, and that, <laughs> but it was New York, so you had that. And... Uh, and then Blowout, which I did, uh, which was about a hair salon, which yep. led to their genius, and that was all underwritten. And even Biggest Loser, We Weave Brands, Office, Ugly Betty, I'd pay less shoes in Ugly Betty. Um, we, we worked with as many people as we could find. And yeah, was it directly yeah. with brands, or were you talking to agencies? Everybody, in the, in the, every stakeholder. At, at Amex, Mark Dowley introduced me to John Hayes, who was the CMO, or is the CMO. Um, and more and more and more. What's interesting now is I don't deal with them as much because they're not part of the conversation with streamers. So as streamers mm-hmm. disintermediated the consumer from the brand uh, by not taking advertising through their culture creation, I, um, I too started to just be able to sell direct and not be as reliant. And the brands just got a little nervous and scared. Like I need to find the brands who really are willing to take the leap of faith because it's hard to make it work purely on the numbers. But yeah. you, you, we found partners who would, and we also started to focus what we can do digitally and, and made content for Yahoo, made content for Microsoft and started to build out some of those opportunities. And then when we ran and managed College Humor at Electus, the company I started after uh, yep. NBC, we did a lot of brand work. And then I started an ad agency with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett called Dum Dum. Yeah. And we did yeah. a brand work. 
And now, Mansum. Mansum. That you did that one with us. I did that. That was a Morgan Spurlock documentary about. Yeah. Um, yeah, like Gillette was was that Gillette? Gillette? Yeah. with our partner from Procter and Gamble. So we 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 worked it, but for the time and energy uh, it took, it never matched up to the opportunities of just doing things the traditional creative enterprise mm-hmm. way. But now I think you know there's another moment. I, I just watch as the brands just continually sit on the sideline and like they they can easily be reactivated for this this modern moment. It's so true. Um, so do you like the model of this like cost plus world we live in? Because I know you're an amazing salesperson. You could probably set up a show with every single streamer at 10 times a day. Do you like that model more than the network model? No, the, the arrogance of the uh, techno elite is sometimes overwhelming. You know, every 17 year old with a job at a mm-hmm. new platform thinks they invented the platform. And yeah. so many times a day you have, you have to be like, no, there, there was this guy named Reed Hastings. You may not know, but he's a direct video <laughs> product yeah. first. And he hired this brilliant guy, Ted Sarandos. And they, they really worked hard on this. There's not, you know, like, mm-hmm. like it, it's not you that is why, you, that you work there is awesome, but you are not the reason for the success of where you work. And so that kind of arrogance is, uh, it makes me a little nuts in engaging with the everyone, but on the other side, um, you know, they are opening and accelerating new storytelling engines. And I love telling docu stories. We have the Hillary Clinton documentary on Hulu right I now. I love that. I saw and it. It's extraordinary to be able to tell these kind of in-depth portraits of moments in time or people. And um, I love what that has opened up with the streamers. I really enjoy the diversity of content we can make, the diversity of international productions we can do. I love foreign language content and have always been a world traveler and have great relationships with talent all over the world. And those things are really exciting about uh, the streaming world. What is going to be last thing? Cause we're going to wind down soon, but what's next for you? You have, you know, propagate you and Howard, the gangs back together. Where's it all going? Cause uh, it's been an amazing ride watching you guys do it again and again. Well, we uh, set up uh, a Lectus and then I left it in a, in a little fight with Barry Diller. And then I uh, partnered up with Howard Owens to start propagate. And we were backed by A&E networks and um, rain Joe Ravitch and Eric Hodge, brilliant, brilliant um, investors and executives. And uh, and then they basically backed us to be able to buy back Electus, which was a huge opportunity. And uh, and we have Drew Buckley with us as well now. And so the collective group um, has real ambition to grow our talent base. You know, we're investors in companies like Artists First and Select Management mm-hmm. and Authentic. And then we also are looking to expand our production capacity uh, daily and, and grow our business and be as creative as we can be as production transforms. That's amazing. And I mean, you've, you really have built it all, a distribution company, a production studio of the future. Um, so Zach, what do you think? I'm looking for a new career. No more jingles. Dude, you, ben you was there. You, you are, this is you. I mean, I'm listening to I want to be a version of you, you know, who's just got a little bit, you know, different path to it. I mean, you're building your own brands. You're always shaking it up a little bit like Ben did. 
when you started Jingle Punks, I knew a lot of musicians who hated you. <laughs> all across yeah. the country, guys. I used to sell stuff all the time till that dick came around. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben saw it early, and at many times in my career where I thought I hit a wall, like I was in a dark place the last two years, and I would Ben would be like, "How old are you?" I was like, "I just turned 40. He's like. Yeah, you're going to be fine. And like, <laughs> even as the thing wound down, you know, he was an advisor and an investor. And he just said, you know, uh, you know, people who are creatives in this town always win and, you know, keep evolving the story. And you, I think you said winners win. The last time we hung out, we were playing drunk ping pong in your backyard. And, and I, that resonated with me. It was like, look, we're all very fortunate and lucky to be in a career where crazy is an asset you know, it's your style of, you know, personalities made you, you know, one of the most recognizable people in this town and probably globally seeing this guy work at like MIP and Natpe, it's like a work of art. But, you know, that's really, I think, for anyone who uh, we've spoken to on this uh, podcast so far, every single person's version of their story is way different, but also very the same. They said, I want to get from here to there and I'll do anything it takes to get there except for the stuff that everybody else, you know, predictably yeah. does. And manifesting your own destiny. And, you know, like when you're put in the closet, do you see the dark or do you, or do you own the dark? Like, do you go, wow, I like the dark, you know? And it's like yeah. finding moments of aspiration, inspiration and motivation in, in your dream and like pursuing it relentlessly. And I, I never look backwards. Like I, 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 I don't think about what happened behind me. I think about mm -hmm. what's happening today and tomorrow and trying to get there. Dude, Dude that is amazing. Did, are there any projects that you really love more than anything that you were like, I can't believe that didn't work? Thousands of them. Yeah. I'm still appalled that like Planet of the Apps never aired. I get Gwyneth Paltrow, Jessica Alba, and Will I Am, and, and it gets basically doormatted. I, you know, going and not remaking so many of these shows that I wanted to do or seeing ideas I've had either imitated or, you know, derivatives happen. Uh, I can count a million failures and concepts I wasn't able to see through that disappoint me so much. And, you know, you feel burnt by a lot of it and you get, and you feel upset by a lot of it, but you just got to keep trucking. And one thing I know, Jared, you, do that. And I would also say you bring such a light and enthusiasm and energy to it. That's contagious. And that's going to, you know, carry you forward. And I love that you're getting into the podcasting world. I think that's brilliant and, and only expanding. I saw a podcast billboard today and I thought of you <laughs> as I was, don't tell anyone I was in my car. I was in my <laughs> it's car. Okay. Um, you still got to go in cars every now and then. But, but, but I was super impressed. Uh, to see how far that medium has come. And, uh, and, you know, I think it's the right one at the right moment. Yeah, well, man, I love talking to you, man. Thank you so much for doing this. And of course you've been a huge not. inspiration to me in my career, and I can't wait for people to hear this. You are the, the best. Thank you, Zach, for taking hey. this guy. Yeah, hey, last question. Planet, yeah. of, Planet of the Apps. That was uh, Jamie Oliver, right? Hey! <laughs> there we go. There you brought it back around. <laughs> Kitchens, bedrooms, and home offices, the modern world. <laughs> I still like Fashion Star, for the record. Dude, Fashion Star was genius. And now I'm watching it ripped time. off by Heidi Klum and uh, yeah. 
and whatever his name is on Amazon. I'm like, guys, come on. That's the exact show we made. You know, it's like so many times. But I think yeah. anyone who's listening to this, who's dreaming in Hollywood of becoming producers, creators, anything, you're going to see your idea done by a million different people. It's maybe going to get on somewhere else. You're going to have that. Even you, Ben Silverman, you're looking at a show that you're like, that was my show 10 years ago. It's a million times. It's part yeah. of it. Good ideas are usually um, happening in multiple pockets at once. You know, and so it then becomes like a race towards uh, execution. Like Armageddon and Deep Impact at the same time. <laughs> Twister, Twister and uh, Sister. And whatever. Torsion. Prefontaine and that <laughs> other movie about Prefontaine. Prefontaine, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of uh, Jobs and Steve Jobs. Wait. Yeah. yeah. Huh? Um, Ashton, well, thank you so this much. Is, guys. This is great. Much love, man. We will speak to you soon. See you on the other side, kids. See you at the bar. Right, brother. Be safe. Bye. Bye. Bye.